Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the Real-Time History Podcast, a podcast where me, Florian Wittig, who is a producer for Real-Time History, um, you might, might know us from YouTube channels such as Real-Time History or The Great War, and Jesse Alexander, who is our host and historian, dabble in all sorts of historic topics. And by dabble, I mean we usually interview experts and historians about their work. Exactly. And I felt that we should branch out for this episode into a bit of myth investigating. I was going to say myth busting, but that's not quite 100% accurate. There's always a grain of truth when historical myths get spun. So I cold emailed basically Dr. Alex Mayhew, who's written I came across an article of his about the origins of British myths about the war, which we usually associate with these books that come out you know, in the decades after the war. But he investigated their origins during the war. And he has also written about a couple of other interesting topics as well. So we kind of package that all together in a discussion. If you are by any chance also interested in British wartime vegetable gardens, this interview will be right for you. Uh, but on the on the topic of myth, I found it quite fascinating how he has this approach of um, going back to the roots and investigating how the myth might have already started during the war and not just something that sprung up. I think if you think about it, it makes total sense because you know, the war was so long, there was propaganda, there was all sorts of stories, uh, the newspapers ran pretty wild back then. And I mean, uh, British newspapers probably back then even had a certain notoriety that they uh, maintain to this day. So it makes total sense that some of these stories that we, you know, might have come across at the, on the Great War, had their roots in either that exact form or some form uh, in the war already. Yeah, and I think this idea that there's one sort of snapshot-ish of a certain phase of the war that impacted people in a certain way at the time that ends up somehow rooting itself in as the image of the war. And uh, I think that, that concept is one that exists outside of history, outside of World War I, you know, sound bites and taken out of context and all this kind of stuff. But I like the way that he tried to apply that to explaining where these myths might have had their origins during the war, during the fighting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, without further ado, enjoy the interview. And if you want to follow Mr. Mayhew on Twitter, we will put a link to that in the description. He's working on a book, as he will say in the interview, but it's not. It's a secret. Good things come to those who wait. So today I'm joined by Dr. Alex Mayhew, who's a historian of cultural, military and social history of war, and he's a fellow at the London School of Economics. Now Alex has written on a bunch of different topics, including morale in the British Army, English national identity during the war, and the formation of British myths about World War I during the war. And that's going to be part of the focus of what we wanted to talk about with you about today. So thank you very much, Alex, for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's give, I want to give you, as uh, Americans would say, a slow pitch right over the middle of the plate to start off, because it's always interesting 
how historians got into the topics that they end up studying. So how did you get into the cultural and social history of war and what led you to decide, yeah, I want to investigate myth formation, not as much after the war per se, but also during the war, which I think is an angle that's not as commonly explored. So where did all that come from for you? Yeah, so I, I, I guess start at the very beginning, as all historians probably should. Um, and that's probably at the point at which I started studying the First World War as a student, which is at school. Um, there's A-level classes all over the United Kingdom on the First World War through literature. And this is one of the topics that's quite frequently highlighted by historians studying the formations of the myths of the First World War it's through the literature that was produced in the, um, the post-war era. And I was already interested in the history of the war. And so I was reading about the Acton Powers. I was reading so soon. I was reading Owen. And at the same time, I was trying to understand where this fits into a, a context which wasn't necessarily being discussed in the classes um, as part of an A-level course, which is obviously far more to do with the, the nature of the prose or the poetry. And that led me on to studying the First World War as an undergraduate uh, with Richard Grayson, who's at Goldsmiths, who I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of through his work on Belfast Boys in Ireland during the First World War. But he had a module on life in the trenches, which looked at this, uh, this dissonance between the memory of the war and the reality of, it, reality of it on the ground. And then that led me directly towards my PhD. And I started thinking about morale during the war at that point, and then studying that as part of my doctorate on perceptions of crisis and morale at a variety of crisis points during the uh, during the Western Front campaign. And what I started to realize is that in 1917, what one sees is the kernel of many of the myths that we then see in the literature. Uh, and that poses the question, well, where do the myths uh, arise from? And Dan Todman's looked at this, right? It's the idea that myths aren't just a fiction, that myths have a kernel of truth, uh, that they represent a history that we can remember, that they, they play a role and a function in helping us uh, hold on to themes about a particular historical topic. And that leads us to the point where there is a source material that underpins those myths. They come from somewhere. And my instinct was that many of these ideas, many of the emotions that one now sees as representative of the whole war are actually uh, strongly connected to the lived experience of 1917, both on the home front and on the Western front, but particularly on the Western front and in the war more generally. Okay, uh, all, always a fascinating story to see how that how those threads end up going back. And so now that we've established how you got interested in myths, and how they're connected to the experience in 1917. What are some of these typical myths that you've looked at from the British perspective in any case? So, I mean, you, you can go only as far as I think Dan Thomas' book. He breaks it down by the idea of mud, death, donkeys, futility, right? The, this war that soldiers or volunteers and then conscripts entered sometimes uh, in a spirit of hope and enthusiasm uh, and willing sacrifice, it's become a shorthand for regret and betrayal and failure and, as I already mentioned, futility. And I think all of these become encompassed in the pictures that are conjured when particularly uh, Britain's talk about the war. So it's trenches, it's mud, it's barbed wire. 
And it's also not a global conflict in many people's perspective. It's something that occurred just over the channel in Flanders and France, uh, ignoring all the complexities of it being a global conflict, even though it's called the First World War, all of those things are lost, even just as people conjure the images. And so I, I, I think those are the, the ideas that are encompassed when people even just hear the words First World War. Yeah, I just just want to point out we all we often use the shorthand that you used of donkeys, but for our listeners out there who may not be familiar with that shorthand, it's this idea that the British soldiers are lions but led by poor generals who usually get tagged as donkeys, which is a disservice to all the donkeys who served in all the armies of the war, I must say. But yeah, this uh, lions led by donkeys idea that the generals were incompetent, right? That's kind of that storyline. So if you want to investigate these myths as you've done, how do you go about getting at that source material that you talked about? I mean, it's easy to look at the you know, volumes of poetry and so on that are published in like the late 20s, around 2930, there's this nexus where a whole bunch of stuff comes out at the same time. And that's uh, often something that people point to to try to understand the war, like Paul Fussell, most uh, notably. But you go back into the, into the 1917 sources. So what, what are they like? Yeah, I mean, this is all the starting point, right? what, what Paul Fussell looks at. Um, and also, I guess you could look at the other literature, Alan Clark being the, the person who famously coined the phrase uh, line, uh, lines led by donkeys. And I also agree that it's unfair on donkeys who are hardworking, <laughs> loyal. Um, and probably it's uh, it's not an accurate representation of some of the some of the people it was aimed to depict. And those are obviously perfect places to start. But all of those things come from something. They they have an origin in a source. And so one of the things one can do is look back at the the ego documents, what cultural historians refer to as ego documents. So diaries and letters and journals uh, written during the period. But also uh, institutional documents, which describe the more general picture of soldiers' experiences at that time. And thankfully, one of the few uh, censorship reports we really have, or many of the few censorship reports that we really have for the British Army during the war, come from this period. So late 1916, but through 1917 into 1918, uh, which also reflects the, the generals and the politicians' greater interest in what the soldiers are thinking and how they're feeling. And I go into those. And what you start to see is the ideas that are then reflected, particularly in the literature that is disenchanted with the war. You can see those ideas crystallizing in the sources written at the time. So you only need to look as far as Sassoon and Owen to see that in the classic cases, the ones that we always know. It's at this period um, in Craig Lockhart in the summer of 1917 that they, they start to draft some of their most famous poems. Uh, but similarly, you can look into the, the diaries and the letters of soldiers who later wrote books, which are seen as a, a counterweight to the, the, the narrative of futility, which is, it, which is arising in the 19, late 1920s, 1930s. So Charles Carrington being a really famous instance of this, he, he wrote more strongly about camaraderie and duty and things like this in his, in his post-war work. But he's even going through this process of disenchantment in 1917, and he forgets that in 1980. And so what I started to realize is that you can kind of trace a pattern. You can see the, the narrative of mud, 
occurring most strongly in 1917 because the weather is so horrendous around Ypres at this time. It's, it's already been scarred by shell fire, but the rain is heavier during that year. It ranges between 1.3 to two times as severe over the summer months. And then except in September, which is coincidentally when the offensive is probably most successful, uh, October again sees heavy rainfall. And so that idea of mud is all pervasive in the diaries and the letters written by soldiers who were fighting at Passchendaele during that period. Uh, similarly, the idea of death um, is one that becomes all-encompassing. Soldiers start to lose any faith that they might survive the war, which is an important coping mechanism, obviously. Similarly, you start to see a decreasing faith in their leader's ability to fight the war to a conclusive end. So this dwindling belief that military victory is even possible, which underpins this idea of futility. But in the post-war world, it's that victory wasn't worth the sacrifice. At this point, it's that victory is not even possible and therefore sacrifice isn't worth it. And that idea of futility just is bubbled, bubbling up at this point. You see it in the censorship reports, uh, increasing fear that soldiers are looking for a negotiated peace. Um, and then also just throughout the army. And soldiers necessarily forget that going on. And I think the other thing that's important about 1917 is this, this locus of disappointment as uh, a point at which futility starts to be seen in the, uh, in the offensives and increasingly in ideas that the offensives aren't worth it, is the fact that 1917 starts so hopefully for British soldiers. So the end of the Somme battles, which are now also almost seen as um, as the, the case study of this muddy, bloody, futile campaign. It's not seen in that way by soldiers at the end of 1916. They see it as something that is treading the first pass towards ultimate victory. Then early 1917 sees a series of bloody but actually quite successful from the British perspective, offensives at Arras, for example, um, and also the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line, which in their eyes is a very important strategic move, but to British soldiers suddenly uh, advancing over open country with cavalry into support, it really seems to signal a change in the tone of the war, a, a real palpable step forward to victory. And all of those things crumble with Passchendaele. And so by the end of the year, the soldiers genuinely feel that there is very little chance of the war being fought to a, a, a successful conclusion. They don't believe the Germans are going to win. They just don't believe that they, they could possibly win. Um, and then it coalesces with another severe winter. Uh, there didn't seem to be a summer. And obviously the British army's shift to a defensive policy for 1918, which is the ultimate signal that victory won't come in the next year. Right? I mean, that is something that they've held on to throughout the war, that the next year could bring victory. That seems to very ironically disappear in the year where they actually do eventually win the war. But it's the first year they enter not believing that that's possible. And neither did, neither did the British government and many of the generals. Okay, um, let's switch over then to the civilian side of, thing, of things. What is the role of the civilian popular culture and the home front in absorbing or perpetuating or helping to create these kinds of myths back in, well, I guess back in 1917. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the home front and as a as a uh, an area in which these myths would proliferate is that actually at this point, the the most popular authors and poets of the war are ones that we've forgotten now. And they're, they're not writing those narratives of futility. Uh, I mean, the, the most famous 
uh, author of The War was uh, John Oxenham, who is now almost unknown. Um, and so I don't think that necessarily the the writing on the home front, at least from a popular culture perspective, is is part of this process. But the home front is going through a very similar period of dejection as the soldiers on on the fighting fronts. And this is all bound up with the nature of 1917. 1917 is not a year that goes well uh, for the Allies. <laughs> the the <laughs> Russian <Okay>. Revolution. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 seemingly the the start of something particularly negative. The Germans are on the ascendancy um, on the on the Eastern Front. Uh, the Italians seem to have collapsed in Italy. And the war seems very far from being won. And not only that, you start to see night raids in in Britain. And Adrian Gregory has pointed to this real crisis of public confidence in the war effort. So I think in the sense that if there's a year where you can trace the feelings which are now connected to the war as a whole, those feelings certainly existed on the home front as well as on um, the fighting fronts. And I mean, it is really difficult to disassociate these things, right? Because soldiers are writing civilians, civilians are writing to soldiers, they're all reading the same newspaper reports. And so I, I think when people looked back on the war and tried to find periods where the emotions that they felt now best reflected the despondency that many felt in the post-war world, where this, this homes, these homes fit for heroes, the, the, the promised glory of victory haven't arisen, that they would turn to these emotions that they, they found in 1917, the things that, that best reflected how they felt in the future. Because I mean, all of this is, we're talking about myths, but what we're really talking about for the most part is selective memory. Right. There, are, there, are, there are myths that are certainly untrue, but at this point, we're talking about selective memory. And I think 1917 on the home front, one could see that as an example of where selective memory would look to, to try and find the most representative um, experiences of the war, especially in the post-war world. And I think, therefore, it's probably difficult to start to unpick it or say that there's a particular... Uh, driving force from there as opposed to the soldiers. But equally, there are events on the home front which, if one was looking for evidence of a futile war in the post-war world, you would find it. So Lord Lansdowne's letter, which essentially pushes this idea that the war needs to see a negotiated peace. And there are strikes and there are calls on behalf of soldiers who have gone back to industry that they shouldn't be sent back again. Um, so I think in short, Yes, we could look to the home front, but we can't really separate what's going on there from the things that are occurring in France and Flanders and probably elsewhere at the same time, if that makes sense. I think it does. It made sense to me anyway. Um, well, hopefully for the listeners as well. <laughs> <laughs> now let's turn to one of the most polarizing figures of the war, at least in particular in the English-speaking world. Now, the original question from our listener was phrased, Douglas Haig, hero or goat? But maybe we, can, maybe we can slightly modify that to hero or donkey. I think that would fit, that would fit in, our, in our theme. So where do you stand on the age-old, well-trodden path of assessing Haig and the connection, his connection to, this, to these myths, right? I think, um, well, first of all, when I first read that question, I thought it was hero greatest of all time. And so I wasn't really being offered much of a choice by the, by the listener. Um, and assuming that would be, that would be setting me up as a straw man. I, I think offering such a binary is something that we tend to avoid when it comes to history, because ultimately 
every actor is deeply complicated. And obviously there are people in history who I think we would probably classify as evil. Um, Haig, though, is a much more complicated figure. The problem is myths are simplifications of the past. And if you're looking for something that simplifies the, the problems surrounding the nature of command during the war, it makes sense that people would focus on the commander in chief for the majority of that period, at least on the Western Front. So I think he is probably um, a victim of his own success, professionally speaking. I think he is the figurehead of, of the military. So I'll, I'll start firstly with the fact that I think there probably is, and there definitely is, uh, a lot of fair criticism of the way that the army was commanded at different points during the war. Uh, I mean, Dan Todman argues that in 1915, maybe best reflects that idea of lions led by donkeys. Um, many people have demonstrated the fact by the end of the war, the British army is performing in a way which definitely doesn't reflect uh, that dichotomy. But there is evidence in 1917 and other points during the war that soldiers, normal rank and file soldiers and officers start to question the effectiveness of their military commanders. And I mean, you only have to be put into battle once in a, in a completely ineffective manner to, to have those questions about your leaders. Now, the interesting thing is there is very little evidence that those sentiments fed up to Haig himself. And I think that's probably where we should start to answer that question is if we're looking back to the war as the source material for the myths that we now see, there is very little to suggest that that dislike or uh, mistrust of those people who are overseeing offensives was really directed towards him, except by people on the home front. I mean, the myth of Hague in many ways lies at the door of people like Lord George. And so what historians such as Alexander Watson have found is when you look at German interviews with POWs, even in the aftermath of the offensives in 1918, they will sometimes willingly say that they they believe, British soldiers, I mean, believe that if they were commanded by German generals, they could take over the world. But what they do say is that they still have faith in people like Haig and Foch. And I don't know how to untangle those two things. But it is probably the fact that Haig has got a job which is so deeply complicated that the soldiers are able to disentangle him from their local command structures. So Haig has a job which encompasses both relations with his allies, like day-to-day command of the forces on a logistics basis, and also like the organizations of offensives. So maybe that distance, which we now see is a problem with the generals in their chateaus, actually protects him from the chagrin of his soldiers. And you only actually need to look at his funeral to see the connection between that, that continued trust in him as a commander-in-chief and uh, and the nature of the post-war world. And a lot of historians have pointed to Haig's funeral as evidence of the fact that soldiers had this continued, uh, not reverence, but relationship with him as a commander that they didn't uh, associate with the donkey's myth. And there were more people at Haig's funeral than there were at Princess Diana's, and nobody questions the role of Princess Diana in British popular culture, but we have with Haig. So purely on a numerical basis there, I think, I would argue that soldiers certainly didn't see him in that way. Now, the real issue is that there are points, I think, that Haig probably should have uh, should have taken a different course. And I think Passchendaele is, uh, is an important example of that. It, would, it should have been clear to commanders 
on the ground that the 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 area around Ypres was just not adequate for an offensive at that period of time. And as much as they achieved some of their goals uh, towards the end of the year, I mean, the, the cost of that was completely, in my view, unacceptable, despite the fact that historians have correctly pointed to the pressure that was pushed on the Germans during that period and how close to breaking point they might have been and developments in tactics, et cetera, et cetera. But the pain that was inflicted on soldiers for gains which was so difficult to come by, I, I, I think that you can and should criticise him for that. But then you have 1918, and I don't know uh, that there is anyone that might would have been able to do what he did with the British Army um, who was around at that time. So I think I'd probably fall back on the classic historian's fence and say that he was the best of a bunch, but everyone was lacking in their ability to overcome the the stalemate on the Western Front. Uh, and it was never going to be easy. And unfortunately, it was always going to be bloody. There are times when he should be criticised, but ultimately, I'm, uh, I'm going to do the good historian's thing and sit on the fence and look at both sides and allow people to shout over me. <laughs> we'll call it nuanced. We'll call it nuanced and contextualized, you see? Yeah, exactly. That's what historians should do. <laughs> so now we seem to be doing this today. We're jumping back and forth between the front and the home front. So let's jump back to the home front for a moment. And the idea of the, the British potentially fearing a German invasion. It's a question that comes from one of our listeners. And I'm wondering if that is also wrapped up in some of these myths? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are, there are myths that exist in the post-war memory of the First World War, and there's myths that occurred during the war itself. And some of the most interesting ones, they all have explanatory value, right? And they tell you something about uh, the people who believe them in the same way that the myths we believe about the First World War tell us as much about uh, subsequent generations as they do about the people that fought in it. And so that idea of invasion or invasion scares is one that occurs frequently in pre-war popular culture. It, it's a frequent theme in the literature of the pre-war world. And it's really wrapped up as well. And historians of the home front will be able, will be able to discuss this in more detail, but with this idea of spy fever, especially in 1914. And I think the listener points to the the relationship between this and 1940 and the fear of invasion in, 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 that, in that second war. And I don't think you can compare those two things. There's, the strategic situation is very different in 1940. Um, and the issue there is that the, the enemy might only be across the horizon. Um, spy fear believes that there, there could be enemies within your midst, but it's not necessarily going to be a whole, a whole army arising over across the English Channel. The important thing, though, is that the myth of invasion, um, which dissipates pretty quickly, is one that tells you a lot about mentalities during the time. And I think, uh, especially if you're trying to understand this, this post-war myth of futility, it doesn't fit with what British people, and particularly British soldiers, believed the Germans to be, which was an aggressor. So the fact that they ever believed that they might be invaded tells you a lot about their perspective on the enemy. And even as it disappears, um, that idea that the Germans are aggressors, the uh, sometimes sensationalized news emanating from Belgium about atrocities, all paints a picture, which means that the war is, is justified because it has to be won, because the enemy must be defeated. 
And I think the interesting thing is that this is maybe forgotten, uh, especially in 1917, as I mentioned, that they don't believe, British soldiers don't believe they're going to lose the war. They just don't believe they're going to win it. And they're reminded of this fact that the Germans might be aggressors or potential invaders in 1918 because they go back on the, the offensive in the West. I mean, the offensives the Germans um, are involved in uh, bookend the conflict, right? And it's almost like the British soldiers need to be reminded of the fact that the Germans might be aggressors in, in 1918. Um, so the, it, they need to be reminded. So it, it remobilizes them psychologically to believe that the war needs to be won again. And so I think this is this is the important part of it. It's it's not that people were necessarily looking to see, waiting for the Germans to arrive over the coast, but it's a a tactic and an idea which helps mobilize the population. Um, so Adrian Gregory has highlighted that actually the, the 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 weeks in which you see the largest recruitment drives or the largest number of men joining the colours are those in which the war suddenly becomes serious. So after Mons and the retreat from Mons, when that risk or the fear of invasion might be heightened, but obviously the British are never pushed to the, uh, the, the ports. They never are pushed back over uh, the English Channel in the way they are in 1940. So there's always that step missing between aggressor and definitely potential invader. And the fear of invasion dissipates pretty quickly, but I would imagine it, it's, 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 uh, regenerated to a degree in 1918 as um, the, the the Allies are retreating almost wholesale or seemingly wholesale uh, across uh, France and Flanders. One might even say that their backs are to the wall, but not to the channel. Exactly. Uh, see what yeah. I did there? If anybody wants to look up <laughs> certain speeches given by certain or certain documents issued by certain generals, then uh, in 1918, feel free for that little Easter egg. Um, right. We've established at this stage that, you know, 1917 is a pretty bad year for the Allies. And there are morale crises throughout Europe, uh, in particular, of course, in Russia, in Italy, in France, and then in Germany in 1918 and in Austria-Hungary as well, that lead to very significant consequences, breakdowns or partial breakdowns of the army. And the British are also facing a certain amount of crisis, as you say, in 1917, but it seems less serious than, than basically what the other belligerents are experiencing. What's going on with, the, with British morale in 1917? It's obviously a really complex question. Uh, They're the best ones. Is, exactly. And morale is a complex phenomenon with many inputs and many outputs. And so I think... There are, there are arguments that could be posited that are both unique to uh, the nature of the British army and the nature of the British soldier. And there are arguments that could be posited which are far more practical uh, in nature. And so maybe I'll start with the latter. So I think the important thing to remember about the British army on the Western front is that 1917 is really the first year that they're, they're on the front foot as uh, the the. I don't mean preeminent in, a, in any uh, moral sense, but the, the, the army taking the full brunt of the offensives, especially after the, the French mutinies um, or strikes, depending on what your, your analysis is. Uh, so I think the fact of the matter there is that they, they've been put under immense pressure for a shorter period of time, probably than the French armies have particularly. Then you have to think about the, the systems of rotation, which are probably 
I mean, in my view, one of the things that are most successful about the British Army in 1914, 1918, they're able to move and cycle units in and out of the, the battle zone in a pretty sophisticated manner. And it means that at least outside of the campaigns of 1914 and 1918, units will spend a relatively, particularly in comparison to the French units put through the Nobel Offensive, for instance, relatively short periods of time actually doing the hard fighting. They might spend relatively long periods of time in pretty horrific conditions, but combat is an event which, if they're lucky, they'll only experience once during a campaign. And so I think that is really important. The other side of it, I think, is that British soldiers have a very different relationship with the military as opposed particularly to the French and the German soldiers in the sense that their military service is not connected to their citizenship in a continental European sense. Uh, Conscription is only introduced during the war and the nature of your service doesn't change as a result of that. Um, So soldiers are subjects, not citizens, and therefore their recourse to to protest or to voice their concerns does not exist in the same way. And also their perception of their service isn't wrapped up in their citizenship. It's more frequently wrapped up in their sense of their, their own personal duty and their own respectability. And there is a potentially an avenue for research, which is, well, is that actually a more effective mechanism for making soldiers toe the line than citizenship? And It kind of flies in the face of the military revolution idea where that is the thing that would push you towards being a more effective soldier. But the case of the British in the First World War suggests it might not necessarily be so. Um, And equally, what you see in 1917-1918 is a response which you also see in the French army, not so much in the Germans because of uh, the pressures on their... um, the, I mean, the war pressures related to them, so like they, they can't practically do this, but they invest far more time in the motivation of their soldiers rather than the, the coercion of them. Um, you start seeing trips to Paris towards the end of the year, for example, to give people rest breaks, and you see the introduction um, or the increasing introduction of, um, of more uh, pleasant activities outside of the line, which they've been doing before, but there is an increased focus on stuff like that. And so I, I think they they effectively combat those things. The issue is it's it still exists and it's still simmering up until the the spring offensives though. So I mean in September you have the ATAP mutiny and I mean we still don't know all that much about it. I mean the source material is so limited. It seems like it was more of a strike against particular local grievances and against the war itself, but it is symptomatic of something which pushes soldiers to at least being willing to question authority in the way that they did. Um, and I tend to agree with the, the analysis of people like David Englander, Englander and David Stevenson, which is that the crisis hasn't necessarily abated before March 1918. Um, what happens is the Germans do that for the British army in, in a slightly perverse way. As I mentioned, they, they remind the British soldiers that there is something to still be fought for, um, that the, the enemy does need to be defeated. And equally, even if you disassociate yourself from that quite high-minded idea of uh, fighting a, a just war, the, the nature of the conflict changes palpably after March 1918. And, and soldiers in a similar way as they did when the Germans retreat to the Hindenburg line, soldiers start to see or sense 
that they're moving into a more mobile form of combat. Um, and especially as the Germans get further away from their lines, artillery is playing a, a smaller role in localized battles. Uh, they're inflicting huge losses on the attacking enemy, even though a lot of British soldiers are being killed and captured as well. And so suddenly there's a renewed sense of momentum, which is the thing that's lost in 1917, which I think underpins the, the ideas of futility that one sees in that year. Suddenly the war could be won again. And the Germans are proving that it could be won again, that tactics can actually reap benefits in a way that I think soldiers had lost their, lost their belief in that uh, during the, the latter part of 1917. Um, I guess I'll leave it there because there are so many other ways that I could go with it. But I think it's, it's, it's cultural, it's practical, and then it's uh, the experience of the, the, the German offences in 1918 that finally changes uh, or at least abates the crisis, allows the crisis to abate. Yeah, that's that's fascinating that the enemy comes and sort of solves your morale problem for you by kicking you in the teeth for a couple of months. That's not something that would necessarily spring to mind as a scenario that eventually resolves uh, a morale crisis. But a, a fascinating sort of big picture aspect. Let's bring it back down for the last question to one very specific radically different in a sense, although related to morale, because food is important to morale, uh, to another topic, and that is vegetables. And as surprised as some of our listeners might be that we've woven that in, it comes from when I was looking at some of your previous work, and I noticed that you recently, if I'm not mistaken, published an article about British Army vegetable shows. And I had to take the opportunity to ask you, what are British Army vegetable shows and what can we learn about, about the social aspect of, of the military history through looking at this example? Yeah, I think that it kind of actually links to one of the points I made, that cultural issue about how morale is nurtured. Uh, and it's no coincidence that these vegetable shows, uh, the ones that I write about take place in La Havre during 1917 and 1918. And they're first instigated in 1917. But you see evidence of potentially similar things occurring across uh, the, the rear zones of uh, the British zone of um, combat. And what I think it tells us is a few things. Firstly, it tells us about life behind the lines and reminds us that there are large sways of the militaries, especially towards the end of the war, that aren't occupied with fighting. They're occupied with the sedentary role of the military, with the logistics, with all the things that are needed to allow the army to fight further up the line. Secondly, it tells us about what the army is trying to do to nurture morale in a, a way which I think would seems pretty alien to people who just see the army as this homogenous institution uh, which uh, enforces discipline. Thirdly, I think it tells us a lot about the instincts of prim primarily civilian soldiers uh, in a military institution. And lastly, it can tell us quite a lot about the interactions between the, the British Army and locals as well. And so, in short, what these shows are, as you see in 1917 at La Havre, the base commandant and his staff start to think about how they can encourage units around the harbour, which is one of the biggest British base camps on the continent, uh, with hospitals, base depots, military prisons, all of, all of these kinds of institutions, how they can encourage units around the base to, to grow more vegetables. 
there are two reasons for this. Firstly, the British Army is having its uh, its allowances cut because of the pressures of the war in 1917, uh, which is related to the submarine campaign. It's also a response to some of the initiatives that one sees on the home front. At the same time, there is a real push for allotments. Um, and it's also because they notice that soldiers themselves are spending a lot of their spare time growing vegetables around their units. And this occurs further up the line, but obviously it's, it's more difficult for obvious reasons. And so they think, well, what, what can we do to try and encourage all of our units around the base to try and use, uh, try and develop their unused land for these purposes. So they they do what the British Army had done for many years. They think, okay, well, we'll try and nurture esprit de corps. We'll try and nurture corporate identity, and we'll do so by introducing a competition which pits the units against one another. And you see this throughout the war, right? You see. Uh, they have sports shows, uh, often which include things like football, but as well as who, who can put together their machine gun in the fastest time. So they introduce competition which incorporates popular culture and military culture. And it's just unusual they do through a vegetable show. You have horse shows elsewhere, which are also attempts to grasp civilian culture on the home front. But a vegetable show seems slightly strange. Um, and they introduce this and it seems to be a roaring success. Uh, the units that take part, uh, they have uh, different exhibits ranging from marrows through to in 1918, having rabbits and chickens. Uh, it seems to encourage a really high level of cultivation in the camps around the Havre. The locals seem to really love it, and they're also invited to take part. So there are uh, French civilian categories and uh, Belgian military categories. Interestingly, they don't compete against each other because I don't think they want to encourage rivalry between allies, but they uh, they definitely want to encourage participation and and uh, and a friendly um, acknowledgement of one another's uh, sacrifices. The awards are handed out by senior French commanders. Um, the newspapers locally write about how they should introduce it every year and they play nice songs, including the French and the British national anthems. And they have like refreshments and they, they have all of these, these, these things which seem very alien, especially given the fact that the first of these takes place, uh, during the battle of Passchendaele. And one of my friends, when I told them about this, said, well, how would you really feel if you were coming back to a base hospital after fighting around Ypres? You've got a horrific injury, and then you see somebody just ex exhibiting their marrow. And like, well, I was doing this. I was doing this up the line, and you've just been growing vegetables. And I think it also helps you to understand why there was a a sense of relative deprivation among frontline troops in comparison to the troops in the rear areas. But that doesn't get around the fact that those troops had to do stuff to make sense of their war experience and to uh, adjust to the the trials of war service, even if they weren't necessarily at the sharp end of the war. And they do so by carving out meaningful spaces and by trying to learn new skills and to divert their attention away from the, the less attractive parts of their lives and to also nurture connection with home, which they might have otherwise been missing. And I think that final point, that, that ability to try and nurture connections with one's previous life is something you see throughout the war. And I think are common to all of these kind of activities. Vegetable shows just being a, a very strange example of one of them. That was awesome. I, I mean, to me, that's a great example of how a historian can tease so much out of a turnip, if you'll 
permit me the expression. <laughs> no, I, I'll take that. I'll put, I'll put that on my uh, website, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listen, Alex, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I thought that was a really great discussion, ranging from you know the big meta topics all the way down to the vegetables of the First World War. And for our listeners out there, Alex has a book that, is, that will be coming out at some point in the hopefully near future on British soldiers' perception of crisis and morale. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And you can also follow him on Twitter. I'm sure he'll announce it to the world when that book comes out. Alex, thanks again for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.